you can turn in the book of Genesis to chapter 11, uh, we will be reading a few verses from that chapter in just a few minutes. But as we continue our uh, trek through the early chapters of God's Word and looking at some of the most foundational concepts in God's Word that appear over and over again, I want to talk with you today about unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. If there are two more loaded words in the English language today, I do not know what they are. Unity and diversity. Uh, unity, isn't that a pretty word? It's a great word. It's, it's a very beautiful idea, right? The word unity carries a lot of positive connotations for us. It's something that we pray for in the church, right? I mean, we're supposed to be unified. The Bible tells us to strive for unity in the body of Christ, that we're supposed to keep the bond of unity, the spirit of peace. And so we do that. Uh, but it's not just Christians who are, who are really called to unity or appreciate unity. I think in the outside, outside the church, the, the whole world likes the idea of unity. Uh, what, if, what if all the people in the world could actually find something to agree on? Wouldn't that be awesome? What if what if we could find some way to work together as, as all of humanity to solve some of the world's biggest problems today? What if, what if we could just put down our petty differences and all get along? Wouldn't the world be a better place? I think so, it would. And, and this vision of unity is driving a lot of people today all over the world. Just for fun this week, and I didn't know what I would find, but I just went to the, the website unity.org. I figured that it existed, and it certainly does, and it seems to be a pretty big and popular website. I wanted to see what I would find, and I found out that unity.org, if you want to go there someday, I don't necessarily suggest it, but, but it's, it's the home of a, an organization called Unity World Headquarters, which describes itself as a global, inclusive, spiritual community. We offer practical tools and uplifting resources to help people of all faiths apply positive spiritual principles to their daily lives. That sounds pretty good, right? Uh, what are some of the positive spiritual principles that you can find out about at unity.org and that all religions can presumably agree on? Well, one of them is this. Heaven and earth respond to the soul that is quickened to praise and thanksgiving. Okay. I mean, I, I wouldn't have put it exactly that way, maybe, but, but that sounds pretty good. Um, here's another one. We are committed to the spiritual work of justice and healing. Okay, that's good. Um, then a little farther down the page, we find out what healing means. Here is what healing means on this Unity website. Healing begins by turning inward and connecting with your own divine nature. Okay, that's a pretty big idea on this website. Uh, it's also, by the way, the path to prosperity, financial and otherwise. It says this, there is always enough money and health and time and creativity. True prosperity lies in knowing spirit as your unfailing source of abundance. By the way, this also leads to world peace. We are one humanity. Collectively, it says, we have the power to shift consciousness and impact the whole. These resources will open you to a deeper understanding of spirit that lives within every person. This is then applied on one of the pages to the current war in Ukraine. It says this, in this moment of emergency for Ukraine and Russia, we call ourselves to God consciousness. We speak the word for harmony. 
Okay, now before you dismiss all this as just a bunch of new age mumbo jumbo, you need to know this kind of thinking is very, very common in our world today. This is not just a fringe thing and not just in the non-Christian world either. You can hear echoes of some of these principles coming from the pulpits of many churches all over America. You might find it taught in your school. Uh, you, might, you might, especially in some of the books that you're assigned to read in, in middle school and high school and college, uh, you will definitely see it all over Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and many of today's popular songs and movies because our culture today is so tired of war and conflict and disagreement and strife that we are very attracted, naturally so, to any philosophy that might bring us together. And we all think, what if world unity were really possible? What if we could all get together and get along? This website that I went to is just one example of many, many out there, many movements, many websites, many organizations out there that are, that are doing this. But it turns out that most of these efforts to establish unity among the different religions and the philosophies of the world end up all pointing in the same direction, which is within, within ourselves. When you hear the phrase God consciousness today, most of the time that you hear that, that is not talking about being conscious of the God of the Bible, being conscious of a God who exists outside of you or a God who exists outside of creation. Being God conscious today for most people means being conscious of the God who exists inside each one of us. And I'm not talking about the traditional Christian teaching of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is something else. This is the so-called spark of the divine that lives, resides within every human being on the planet, such that if we could all just get in touch with that inner light, we would find that we have enough in common with each other to bring the whole world together in peace and harmony. That's the ticket. That's the idea. That is a belief. That is a conviction that is driving a lot of people today. But here's the question. When we dig down deep inside of ourselves, looking for that inner light, is that what we really find? Let me ask you this. Is that what you really find? Do you find a divine spark of goodness ready to bring us all wholeness so that we can all get along together better in the world? Is that what you find? Or when we dig deep inside of ourselves, do we maybe find something else? Do we find something perhaps a bit more sinister? Maybe even something that will destroy us and hurt other people if it's not dealt with. I want to come back to this idea a little bit toward the end today and as we flesh things out, but, but let's change gears for a few minutes, and I want to read you the story of the Tower of Babel. This is in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Most of you know something of this story. It's pretty famous. It resides here in Genesis 11, nine short verses. It says this. This is a few generations after Noah. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, 
Behold, they are one people and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And let me just review, summarize this story for a couple minutes, and then I want to draw three big ideas from it today uh, that come from this passage. Most of us are somewhat familiar with the Tower of Babel. Uh, this story is as the explanation of why people all over the earth speak different languages today. And it is that. It does explain that, but there's a lot more to it than that. First of all, to really understand this story, you have to understand it in the context of Genesis chapter 9, especially verse 1 where God is talking to Noah after the ark lands, and God gives Noah and his family a commandment that is really meant for all of us, and and he says this, multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. In other words, we were supposed to spread out. That was the command that God gave humanity. They said, spread out and fill the earth. God told us to move, as it were, horizontally, to move out, spread out, and cover more of the earth. And so what did we do? Well, naturally, God says horizontally, so what do we do? We started to think vertically. Rebelling against God's commandment to fill the earth, instead staying in one place, this plain here at Shinar, and then to build a big tower that reaches up to the heavens, exactly the opposite of what God told us to do. At which point, God kind of takes a deep breath, kind of rolls his eyes at us a little bit, and responds by confusing our language. Now, If you've ever undertaken a major construction or renovation project at your home or place of business, you know how fun it is to deal with contractors and and suppliers and people like that. You're already pulling your hair out, right? So imagine what it would be like if you and your contractor didn't speak the same language. I mean, literally, and couldn't understand each other at all. Some of you say, well, that's what it's like already. No. Um, Imagine if you really couldn't communicate. No wonder things at this tower came unglued so quickly. I mean, and so soon what happens here, of course, is that, that men begin to realize that it's easier to work with, easier to get along with the people that you can actually communicate with. So over time, the people, they got together in tribes and they did what God had told them to do in the first place, which was to spread out, give each other some space, and populate more of the earth. And by the way, we see the places where a lot of them went in Genesis chapter 10. Um, you need to know that 10 and 11, like some other parts of Genesis, are not in chronological order. Chapter 11 is really the explanation of how chapter 10 uh, came about. And we don't know how many different languages God created at this time, uh, but certainly the languages that he created then, uh, they became different language families. And of course, over the years, we see thousands of languages and dialects evolving from these. And of course, this scattering of people that happens here in Genesis 10 and 11 is not just along linguistic and, and geographic lines necessarily, but all of the ethnic and all of the cultural diversity that we see in the complex world of today started back here. So the story is pretty important. It's a lot more important than its its short length here would suggest. But what do we learn from it? I mean, practically, what do we learn from it? Let me draw out at least three three big principles for you from this passage. The first one is simply this. It's that unity isn't always a good thing. Unity isn't always a good thing, and that's because the dominant culture, the dominant worldview, the dominant spirit of the age can be very, very wrong. And as a matter of fact, 
If you look through human history, it usually is wrong. Notice how God says down in verse 6. He says, nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them because they're unified. God is recognizing here not, not so much the inherent power of humanity to achieve things, although we certainly can but he, he's also and especially recognizing the innate power of fallen sinful humanity to really mess things up. What God is really getting across here, you can almost say it this way, if mankind is unified, there's almost no limit to the amount of damage we can do if we all just work together. We've mentioned over the last couple of weeks that what God is doing here between the time of Noah and the time of Abraham, which we'll start looking at next week or two weeks from now, that, that over, over, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that God is putting some things in place here after the flood to keep mankind from achieving maximum evil. Because we're still fallen people. After the flood, the flood didn't change that. We still have this, this sin living inside of us. We still have the capability for a lot of, 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 of sin. And so God is not going to allow that to, to hit the actual maximum point. He's going to keep us from maximum evil, and, and, and he does it a few different ways. We see a couple weeks ago we saw that he does that by always maintaining some kind of righteous witness on the earth, whether it's Noah or later on some other people. Then last week we saw that it's also giving human beings the responsibility to govern ourselves. Well, this is another significant safeguard here that God puts in place. This enforced diversity, if you want to call it that, is a natural check on man's level of sinfulness because it minimizes our ability to work together to do evil. It is no coincidence that the nations of this world who have been responsible for the most oppression, the most bloodshed, the most massacre of their fellow human beings have also been the nations in which unity has been the strongest either because it was enforced by the central government, as in places like Soviet Russia and communist China, cultivated through propaganda, as in Nazi Germany, or achieved through strict uniformity of religion, as in the, the Islamic theocracies of today, or even the supposedly Christian nations who carried out the Inquisition and the Crusades back in medieval Europe. Unity, when it is achieved or when it is enforced, can be put to very effective use for the service of evil. In fact, it's worth mentioning that Babel, Babel here in Genesis 11 is actually the forerunner for Babylon and was probably established in the same geographical location. And one day, Revelation tells us this, the last book of the Bible tells us, there will come a man one day onto this earth whose goal is to take the place of God. This man will be acting under the influence of Satan, and he is going to bring a kind of unity to the whole world, using the religion of Babylon to do it. The Antichrist will present himself as the greatest unifier the world has ever known, and he'll be good at it, and the people are going to follow him. Which means, to, to maybe bring it down from the cosmic level into our lives here, um, if you ever notice if you ever notice a groundswell of people moving in a certain direction and starting to agree on everything, then you need to be very, very suspicious. I know that sounds cynical, but if you ever see people getting to that point where they're all starting to agree on things, be very suspicious, especially if it gets to the point where people try to silence or shame or ridicule anyone who dares to disagree with them. This might happen in your nation. It might happen in a political party that you traditionally support. It might happen in your town. It might happen in a church that you're part of someday, hopefully not this one. 
It might happen among a group of close friends that you hang out with. The question is, what if, that started, what if people did start to gravitate in a direction that's so uniform like that and really trying to, to secure conformity and, and, and quash all dissent? Here is, here is a question you can ask. Would you be willing to, to be the one to say, hey, what's going on here? Hey, y'all, why are we doing this? Why do we all believe this? Why, why are we always saying this? Why are we acting this way? Even if it makes you sound a little crazy. You know, nobody presumably stood up, or if they did, we don't hear about it in, in, in Babel, and said, why, why aren't we doing what God told us to do? Why are we doing this other thing? Would have sounded crazy. Are you willing to stand up for what you believe in when the crowd goes the other way? And I'm not just talking about dominant cultural opinions on issues that we've talked about recently, like abortion and racism and sexuality and gender. And I'm not just talking about calling people out for sins that, that we often fall into. I'm thinking more about some very subtle assumptions that have worked their way into our common belief system today, such as the idea that all religions lead to the same God. Very common idea. Such as it doesn't matter really what you believe about religion or spiritual things as long as you're not just a big jerk to everybody. That's a theological concept today that drives a lot of the world. According to a recent study by two prominent sociologists, here is the common creed today among the vast majority of most American teenagers and young adults. Okay, and I'm not picking on teenagers and young adults because we're the ones that taught them this and continue to do so. This is the common creed today when they survey teens and young adults. And by the way, this belief system I'm about to describe to you is very consistent across all denominational lines and traditions. There are five main points, five points, okay? just like Calvinism, only a lot different. Right? Here are the five points today. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Okay? That's today's theology. Now, Maybe you'd think that such a nice and sweet and non-judgmental set of beliefs would naturally lead to a world full of nice people, of kind and compassionate people who knew how to love each other. But that's not what we find. Instead, we find that today's young adults score 40% lower than they did a generation ago on tests measuring their level of compassion for one another. And they score 65% higher on tests measuring narcissism, and selfishness. Why is this? Is it perhaps because when the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself, you're not really driven to love others, but instead you're driven more deeply into slavery to your own self-absorbed heart? A heart that Jeremiah in the Bible reminds us is not really a source of goodness and unity, but rather is, quote, desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And that heart, more than anything else, ultimately just wants to be its own God. Now, what was, what was the creed of mankind at the Tower of Babel? 
Was it similar? Were their beliefs similar to anything that's happening today? Well, in some respects, yes, because the builders of this tower were indeed trying to get in touch with their God consciousness in the sense that they were trying to to get in touch with their own godhood, their own divinity, only they weren't looking for inner peace and happiness and self-esteem so much as we are today. What they were looking for was glory. They were looking for reputation. It says they were looking to make a name for themselves. That was their path to self-deification, to being God. But this leads me to the the second big idea from this passage, which is this, that if you're going to live for your own glory, if you're going to live for your own reputation, if you're going to live to make a name for yourself, then you're being ridiculous. You're being ridiculous. Now, that's kind of a weird way to put it, and I know that I don't usually use language like that in my sermon outlines, but in this case, it actually matches the tone of the passage pretty well. I don't know about you, but when I first learned about the Tower of Babel, as a kid, I got, what I got the idea of was, I got the idea that we were actually trying to physically reach heaven. Did you learn that too? That the, the tower was supposed to actually physically get so high that it would reach heaven. Now I think about that now, it sounds kind of silly and simplistic. But in a way, it's not far off because what these people are indeed trying to do is they're trying to reach God's level. Maybe not physically, but in terms of glory and reputation and fame. They're trying to be where God is. And they're saying to themselves, why, why go to some other part of the world where nobody will know us or celebrate what we're doing? Let's stay here. Let's stay together. Let's congratulate ourselves. Let's recognize ourselves for our own greatness. In other words, let's worship ourselves. We can be just like God. Well, to borrow from an old internet meme, God is not impressed. In fact, that the tone of God's response to man's great achievement here is primarily one of ridicule. He's actually making fun of us. Twice God talks about going down to see what's going on. So, so we're, we're building this huge tower, as high as we can possibly make it, and it's like God is like, what, what's going on down there? What, what are those little people doing? I, I guess I'm, maybe I should go and find out what's happening and, and see what they're doing. That's the, and then God actually... Then God actually mocks the language of the people that they're using to describe their accomplishments by using the same construction they use. What's happened here is people have hit upon a huge technological breakthrough, and it's called bricks. We have discovered bricks. Now, there's nothing wrong with technological progress. It's the attitude that's the problem. So apparently what happened in this plain of Shinar, there maybe weren't a whole lot of rocks and, and clay available like in other places that people would normally build with. So they said to themselves, well, it looks like God didn't give us any of the usual materials to work with here, but that's not going to stop us. We're so smart, we can make our own stuff. So come, let us make bricks. You know, come, let us build ourselves a city. And so in verse 7, God says, imitating them in deliberate mockery, come, let us go down and confuse their language. And so he does. The point here is that although man may have a lot of ingenuity and a lot of potential, he always makes a fool of himself when he tries to step into the shoes of God. Always. There have been a lot of movers and shakers in this world over the world's history that have made a name for themselves. They've conquered empires, they've discovered new worlds, they've cured diseases, they've written books, and and in some sense, by doing this, because we know their names today, they've achieved a sort of limited immortality, right? But let's face it, Alexander the Great is now Alexander the Dead. His empire is no more, and if all he did with his worldly success was to make a name for himself, 
We might remember his name today, but I can tell you he's not enjoying his accomplishments a whole lot right now. A much wiser man, the guy who wrote Ecclesiastes in the Bible, in all likelihood King Solomon of Israel, eventually came to the realization that trying to carve out an eternal reputation for yourself is a fool's errand. He says this, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be. That when you become great on the earth and you've achieved all your dreams, that all the fame and fortune is nothing more than what he calls emptiness and chasing after the wind. His conclusion at the end of the matter is simply this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So how many times do you, how many times do we face a choice in our lives, maybe in some difficult time or some difficult conversation that we're having, a choice between following Christ and protecting our own reputation with other people? You know, how many times do we have a choice when we're talking to someone to say what we know God wants us to say or to say whatever will make us look good in that situation? Because very often those are different things, aren't they? How many times do we, we have to decide between doing what what will make people like us more and will get us ahead more and doing what we know God wants us to do? How many times when handling our money do we have to decide between building God's kingdom and building our own little kingdom on earth? Between pursuing our glory and pursuing his glory. Solomon said this, he said that that, that real wisdom is found in fearing God and keeping his commandments. Well, that doesn't sound very thrilling sometimes, right? I mean, is, just, is, is, is Solomon giving up any possibility of, of achievement? Is he giving up any possibility of making a difference? Any possibility that people on earth can somehow still leave a really exciting legacy in the world? Is there some way that we can still do something that's worthwhile and lasting? During prayer meeting this last Wednesday, I was um, looking down at the, at the prayer list on the inside of the bulletin where we have our international prayer requests. And I, I noticed that a people group at a remote part of Indonesia, the Nagalic people, are having their recently completed Bible translation made into a recording so that people can hear God's word in their own language even if they can't read it. I'm pretty sure, by the way, this is the group that Buzz Maxey was working with. He, many of you heard him speak here at FAC three years ago. And I thought, you know what? That's a legacy. I mean, what kind of a legacy is that to leave? That, that's something that will outlive the people who are working on it. Wouldn't it be cool to leave God's Word with someone who never had it before? And as a matter of fact, isn't that in some small way kind of reversing what happened at the Tower of Babel? The last big idea for today is this. While living to make a name for yourself is rather foolish, Living to make a name for Jesus will actually accomplish something. In fact, it's something eternal. And let me just get a little more specific, okay, and a little more practical. Not all of us can be Bible translators for some remote tribe in Indonesia. But all of us can play a part in fulfilling the Great Commission, which is to say every single one of us can do something with our lives to help bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations of the world. All of us. Let me ask you a thought question. Was the Tower of Babel a great tragedy for humanity? Or was this scattering of the, in the world going to happen anyway, and God just kind of helped it along and made it happen faster? Another way to ask the question is like this. 
Was it God's intention all along to have different nations and languages and cultures on the earth? I believe it was. Partly because I know here it says that God told people to spread out. He said, spread out. And over, over history, that very spreading out itself has resulted in all sorts of diversity among the human race. Most of it has occurred since Babel. So it probably would have happened in any event. But I also note this. I find this very interesting. When we get to the book of Revelation, when we come to the end of history, and God restores all things in Jesus Christ, did you notice he doesn't do away with the nations? He doesn't do away with the nations. God is indeed in the process of undoing what happened at the Tower of Babel, but he's not doing it by melding all people groups back into one culture. He's not doing it by combining all of the nations into one big super state. He's not even doing it by bringing the world one common language. And he's certainly not doing it by combining all world religions into some sort of vague, wishy-washy worship of the God within. How is he doing it? He's doing it by sending us with the gospel of Jesus to every nation, tongue, and tribe on earth, which is the only way they can be saved. Revelation 7 says this, And then I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is worshipped with these words, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The key to unity for the human race And the key to unlock the potential God has put into us through his image is not for each of us to look inside of ourselves to find the divine spark within and so to come together somehow based on that. The key to unity for the human race is for all the nations in all of their great diversity to hear the story of Jesus who died and rose again for their salvation, to find victory in him over sin and death, to be released from slavery to the selfish and violent false God within themselves, and to worship God together in Christ for all of eternity. Now this message does not cancel out the diversity of humanity. In fact, it takes advantage of the diversity of humanity to make the worship of the one true God that much more beautiful and multifaceted. Think about it. See, I believe a lot of what God is doing and saying to us here at the Tower of Babel is something like this. God is saying, y'all, why are you standing around in one place like this? I told you to fill the earth. Do you have any idea how much beauty and wonder I have placed in this earth? And you're hanging around in this plain here. You will never know that I've made mountains and valleys, oceans and rivers and coral reefs, lakes and forests and canyons and fjords. And you'll never know the way that you human beings can, in your own way, reflect the beautiful diversity that I've built into the world. Because humanity, people, as you develop new traditions and new cultures and new architecture and new art and new music and new technology, you'll be finding new ways to worship me and to express my glory throughout this whole earth. I believe that's a lot of God's heart 
for the nations. The diversity of the human race was apparently so important to God that when he created it, you probably realize that he made the job of reaching a fallen world with the love of Jesus, he made that job a lot harder, didn't he? Some of you who have cross-cultural experience are nodding your heads and saying, yeah, it's awful hard now. We have to learn other languages. We have to go across borders. All this crazy stuff. It's much harder than it might have been. But you know what? You and I, as believers in Jesus, have the great privilege of putting our own little individual kingdoms on hold so we can contribute to God's big worldwide kingdom of love. We are also called, all of us, to play a part in overcoming Babel by reaching the nations for Christ. This morning, you saw a picture about half an hour ago of, an, of, a, of some people in a nation in West Africa where a group of business professionals who would not otherwise have access to the gospel are now being reached with the love of Christ through professional development seminars. That group has just gotten bigger thanks to your giving to provide people with new desks for that program. Very simple. But because of your generosity, First Alliance was able to leave an eternal legacy there by partnering with the two missionary couples who are reaching these business people and through them reaching the people they're influencing. And we didn't do it to make a name for ourselves, but to make a name for Jesus in a place where very few people currently know him. This is the same reason we are planning to send a team of FACers to El Salvador in July. It's the same reason Pastor West is hosting a meeting of the missions committee in the library right after the service. You're giving to the Great Commission Fund, to the other workers that we support, is all part of this effort. And I'm always, by the way, more than happy to answer questions about how all that works and how you can get involved and how you can give. Even that insert in your bulletin this morning, you will find ways there to do this by crossing cultural barriers with the gospel and transcending the Tower of Babel. Every dollar given, every worker that is sent out, every prayer offered, every time, here's another one, every time you get out of your comfort zone and you try to build a relational bridge to someone of a different race or culture or language so that one day maybe that person might respond to the gospel, you're making a difference. You're making a difference. God is doing something very big in this big, diverse world. He is bringing true unity to the nations by offering them salvation in Christ. And the cool thing is, he is inviting you to join him. Are you in? Are you in? Are you tired of just making a name for yourself? Wouldn't you rather do something to let more people hear about his name? Let's pray.